Welcome to the Jay Martin Show. My name is Jay Martin. I am an investor and the CEO of Cambridge House. And my guest today is Tommy Thornton, the founder of Hedge Fund Telemetry. Now, Tommy is a sentiment trader. And why I wanted Tommy on the show is because I consider myself to be a sentiment investor. And what I mean is that I pay a ton of attention to behavior in the market. I follow sentiment that I, I, you know, I have conversations for a living. So what I do is then gauge the sentiment that I see as the common denominator across all of my guests. And that really assists me in my decision-making when it comes to determining what is overvalued, what is undervalued, where is the next wave of capital flowing, et cetera. And tools like Twitter, honestly, are also great platforms to just gauge what people are thinking and doing with their money. However, Tommy has some more specific tools in order to stress test our sentiment indicators, and I appreciated pulling those out of him today. The second half of the interview, we actually pivoted from general market sentiment and talked a lot about geopolitical power balance, specifically to some of the headlines we've seen come out of China. Restrictions like uh, weekly restrictions on online gaming, celebrity exposure. You know, there's been some very, very prolific names that have since... uh, recently been scrubbed uh, from existence online and just what the big picture plan here may be, what he sees it from the regime in China and what they're trying to create uh, within the country. And so fascinating to get Tommy's perspective on that as it's just become something I'm increasingly curious about, but I'd say understand at a very low level. So it was it was fun being able to ask Tommy questions and get his perspective on some of these issues today. So. Tommy Thornton, super smart. Uh, I really enjoyed chatting with him. I hope you enjoy this as well. Without further ado, here is Tommy Thornton on The Jay Martin Show. Enjoy. Okay, guys, Jay Martin here, investor and CEO of Cambridge House. I'm joined right now by Tommy Thornton, once again, the founder and president at Hedge Fund Telemetry. Tommy, it's good to see you. Good to have you back on. Hey, Jay. Nice to see you too. So the last time we chatted, uh, we covered a lot of like like investor psychology. You know, we talked about a lot of the biases that blind me <laughs> as I'm making my decisions in the market. Things like recency bias, uh, conservatism bias, hindsight bias, all this stuff that like impacts our intuition behind the scenes. And I think it's really important to be aware of as much as you can. Now, I'm a real sentiment-driven investor. Tommy and I follow people and I invest in people and I my sentiment indicators are things like Twitter, which can lead you down good paths sometimes, but also lead you down uh, the wrong rabbit holes. So if you're connecting, I mean, you're you're known as, you know, a sentiment trader, sentiment investor, you have some effective tools to help confirm your conviction or maybe challenge it. How do you describe sentiment using sentiment as a tool in the market, Tommy? Okay, well, we've got a couple of places where we can go here. First of all, sentiment to me is a condition. It's a market condition. Sentiment can stay overly bullish or overly bearish for perhaps a period of time that most people that are waiting for a turn get frustrated with. So if currently, let's say the S&P bullish sentiment on the daily sentiment index, it hit 90% and it's dropped down to 50%. It backed up to 60%. We might be having higher lows and that those are changes. But over the last six months, that measure, which is a very good daily measure of sentiment, was extremely overbought for six months. And I have not seen it like that for a long time. And it was frustrating. But I will say, I do have a bias. I, I can be 
biased short or it can be biased long. And usually I tend to go against the crowd and buy stuff, markets, commodities, currencies, when everybody is just saying, you cannot be serious and you want to buy that. And I've done it a few times in my career uh, successfully. Um, I mean, I was extraordinarily bullish in March of 2020, covered all my shorts and went long. Now, I, I hear what you're saying that it can, it can cause some problems with your trading if you're too bullish, too bearish. Sometimes it's good to recognize that and say, God, I'm, I'm, I'm really wrong here. It's not working. And you just limit your exposure. You take some exposure down. You have to keep moving. You can't just say, I'm going to be long this and I don't care what the market says and it's going against you. You've got to move. And you know, also when it's getting too bullish, take some off. It's, there's nothing better than booking profits. And that eliminates the anxiety of feeling like you're on the wrong side or you, 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 or you could see a pullback or something could change. So I'm a, I'm a trader. I will move things in and out of positions. I'll trade around them. And that, that helps me. Now, one thing that I tell people all the time is you have to find through your career market sentiment tools and curious type of things that happen at market highs and market lows. And those, that can, it's not necessarily saying equity markets, it could be bond markets, it could be currency commodities, Bitcoin, anything. And I can tell you, like I, I used to say, well, when the New York Post would put the, you know, the New York Stock Exchange trader, you know, just going like this, that was like, we got to buy, you know, the CNBC uh, market and turmoil thing that when they'd run that program, it used to be a great buying opportunity because mm. that's when everybody is on one side, they're very bearish and people want to hear what, how bad it is or the, the difficulty of what's happening right now. On the other hand, let's look back in January and GameStop was going nuts on the upside and Everybody was talking about it. The local news here in Connecticut, New York, it was like one of their first stories. It was on the nightly news um, mm. on all of them, on the cover of newspapers, magazines. Uh, they had congressional hearings on it. Even my daughter, who's in college, she's a senior in college, she called me and she said, hey, dad, what's going on with this GameStop? She's a film major. And she's asking me about mm. this. And she's seeing these boys in her college trading it on their phones. And so I see things like that and I think, okay, you know, it's getting a little overdone. It's just too much on one side. Now, when you're wrong with a position, the best thing to do to clear your head is to take down your risk, um, take a position off. I mean, that's hard for maybe a private equity investor or a venture capital investor, obviously, but for, a public markets investor, I can tell you that I know a bunch of hedge fund managers that they've just felt lost and they say, okay, I'm just taking down exposure. I'm taking a week off. They go and they they clear their, their head. They come back, they refocus. They can always get back into those positions. That's the thing. People take losses. It's okay. That's part of the game. And if you've been in it long enough, you know when to take losses before they become something that becomes much more stressful. Yeah. 
And it's hard though, isn't it? Because our resistance, like we are very loss averse as creatures. Like we're, we're typically more fearful of losing than we are excited about winning. Right. And I think there's been some really, well, there has been some really interesting like behavioral economic studies that prove this about human beings. Right. I'd, I'd much rather not lose that than gain that, uh, simply put. So I'll give you a real life example then. You know, I, I, uh, I'm pretty exposed to the commodity sector, specifically precious and base metals. And, you know, gold price was fairly flat for the majority of 2021. I believe the setup was quite strong. And so I built positions in a lot of my favorite gold, silver developers, expecting the market was positioned for a breakout eventually, since come down significantly. And I'm sitting on a lot of companies that I feel have uh, very healthy balance sheets or really fantastic management, good assets and good jurisdictions. And in theory, if I like them up here, I should like them even more down here. Uh, but it's hard, right, to uh, determine whether or not you're just failing to give up on an idea that is being proved wrong or determining my thesis is still right, my timing was just wrong. Right, and this is an amazing opportunity. I've decided it's an, it's an amazing opportunity, and I'm averaging down in uh, a select number of these names. But when you find yourself in that position, Tommy, what do you look to to help stress test your your mindset? Okay, so I this is a little play doctor here with you. One of the problems that that happens um, on let's say great value names and gold miners or and silver miners and they're they're just it's a classic value opportunity. They're they're they are well managed. They they they're cheap, but the problem is you don't have any new buyers coming in. Now you could you could name all the big gold uh, funds and the they they basically are long. They're already there. Now gold move. I think it was a few years ago when Paul Tudor Jones came on on CNBC, and he's like, "Hey, I'm buying gold. It's going to seventeen hundred. I'm talking like Paul. I know Paul. Um, that's how he talks. He goes, oh, it's going to seventeen hundred. It's going up. Inflation, and uh, that brought in a whole group of people that felt confident to follow along with what Paul Tudor Jones was saying. So you had this whole new crew of people that came in, bought the miners, bought gold. It worked for a while, and then it's sort of back up now." Precious metals are are very strange these these days. You've had some big moves in like platinum and palladium, uh, both ways, and gold has had these false starts, and it's just frustrating. I, I hear a lot of clients. I know who they're they are that are long, uh, and they're like, uh. but the the thing is, is you you're competing with Bitcoin. Now we we all know we're in an inflationary moment in time. This is not something we've ever seen really for many years, this type of inflation, the amount of money that's being printed by the Fed. And it's just, it's like, a, it sounds so perfect for gold and for miners, but you just can't get new people coming in because they'd rather buy Bitcoin at $42,000. And that's a different hedge. It works. It goes up a lot. It goes up, it goes down. It's easily, it's traded. I'm looking at gold right now. It's up. It's down 16 basis points. GLD is down 11 basis points right now. Friday, the 24th. That's that just you. You need to attract people, and you're not going to get someone that's going to say, "Oh, you know, I'm going to be trading GLD all day," and it doesn't move. So that's one of the things. People in this world right now, 
they're chasers. That's what this market is. And you have a ton of new money that's come into the market and they're chasing what's worked. And they're chasing things higher after they move. And that's part of a sentiment thing as well. But the problem I have is when the miners and, and like, I know they're, they're well managed and they're, they're cheap. They don't work unless you have new people coming in or some really strong catalyst. Mm. And that's just been not there. And seasonality is always something to keep an eye on as well, because when they do get into their seasonal period, I think around mid-December through January, it's like perfect time to be long those. I, I, I like seasonality a lot. But one of the things that I would do, instead of necessarily averaging down, because I like to keep capital, I mean, I, I average up and I average down, but I always have a 5% limit as far as what sizing I can do for one particular position. I would uh, use options. So if you're if you're long XYZ at $40 and you sell a 45 out of the money, don't you know, $45 uh, call out of the money and you get taken out of that, you just had the biggest move in that particular gold miner in months. And if you got taken out of it, you were taken out of it at a pretty good premium. And if it doesn't work, you just collected premium. I also also sell puts on on certain ideas that can be a little risky i obviously we've seen you know catastrophic blowups with with that strategy mm. but i would do like half size put option put half size and then a full position on selling a call you know i i can tell you i've seen so many people get, get taken out of a, a, a covered call position and they're just furious i'm like you just made money why are you so upset well it went up higher i'm like okay well you sold that call thinking it may not get there and if it does go through there you take a profit yeah you gotta be like less beat up you know you can't beat yourself up when these things happen i've seen people beat themselves up after taking huge gains i mean it's like i wasn't big enough so that's that's how i look at when i'm in a position that's not working i mean i can tell you i've been short tesla i sell puts in against my short position in tesla every single week and I collect premium, why not? The premiums are so high and you can do it. So that's that's a little maneuver that I do just to kind of bring in and trade around positions. And if I and if I'm put stock and I'm I'm, I'm buying it lower, then hallelujah. I've I've just bought in something I like lower and it's at a um, disciplined fashion. Mm. That's that's how I see it. Yeah, I appreciate that. Those rules are so important in, in addition to your 5% limit for holding. Can I ask you, Tommy, like when did you discover what kind of investor you are, right? Because you mentioned it, we've got a lot of chasers in the market. There's a variety of traders, day traders, swing traders that have really surged in the last 18 months. Value mm-hmm. investors like, like myself. When did you discover what kind of investor and how did you discover what kind of investor you are? It's a long journey. And it's a long journey and you, you have to write down things that you do that you like what, you know, you have sort of a process and a checklist of things that, that you do. I have a bit of a value background. I took the, you know, I passed the level C, level one CFA way back, um, got hired to work at a hedge fund right after, and I didn't go back and that was fine. I learned enough. So I have a little bit of a value bent on things. Uh, I will say that, that I, was 
a super bullish person through the 90s, rarely shorted stocks. I saw people that did short stocks and they made lots of money. And then 2000 hit and I started to see the market get really dangerous. And I was drafted to hired at a hedge fund and it was a long short uh, science and technology fund. So we had all the favorites of was, 2000 was a very 2001, a very volatile time for technology stocks and healthcare biotech stocks. So I really became more attuned to being comfortable shorting stocks. So I, I, and buying shorting stocks. I have no problem. I'm disciplined sizing um, and stops and trade around things with options, blah, blah, blah. But I will say, then I went and started at a much larger fund that ended up being $5 billion. We traded up to, we traded so much every single day that I became very agnostic to, you know, price and things moving in different directions. And I did not have really uh, a problem because I had a great team around me. But when I left, I was thinking, okay, how am I going to replicate this and trade my own assets on my own? And so I, you know, I have position sizing uh, risk levels. I have certain sectors that I tend to gravitate towards. I trade a lot of consumer. I trade a lot of energy, financials, I don't trade as much technology as you'd expect. Most people do, but I like consumer. It's, it seems a little easier for me. Can I ask why you shy from technology? Well, I, I do trade technology. A lot of times, it's just the, the valuations make no sense to me. And I, I will be the first one to tell you that my performance could have been as the best performance in the entire world if I had, in, 2000, in 2020, just held on to all of those big mega cap tech names that I bought in size. <laughs> but I, you know, I trimmed them and some of them went up 40%, 50%. I thought, I, what am I, I've got to take some profits. It's we're still in our in a pandemic, but I've sold so many things in my life too early. And <laughs> that, you know, you, you, you tend to learn to be okay with it. You don't you took money <laughs> off the table. Yeah. That's, you can't be mad at that. Thing. You can't be mad at taking money off the table, right? And that's, uh, yeah, that's, uh, it's so important. I don't know if you can learn that the easy way. I think you have to learn it the hard way, right? You have mm -hmm. to experience the greed of a rising share price and then the skull crushing anxiety of a falling one before you can wrap your mind around that. Yeah. One thing that I always get questions from uh, my clients and, you know, they say, oh, Tom, I'm in this XYZ. I trade a lot of XYZ, obviously, and, <laughs> and I've got a profit and I, I don't know what to do. Should I sell it? Should I buy more? What should I do? And I'm like, well, you could sell half. And whenever I get that, what should I do type question? Mm. I always think to myself, take some off. If you have a little bit of a doubt and that's internal, that, that if you have a little bit of a doubt and you're worried that you might see a reversal and that could cause a problem. Be half right, be half wrong. You're not gonna be, you can have some maneuverability if you wanna buy it back. Let's say you sell something and it goes up more and the news taking it up higher can re give you more conviction. You're just averaging that earlier price higher and you're still profitable. So it's just have that flexibility. And most people, they don't wanna have that flexibility. They wanna be long, 
Bitcoin to the you know a million and put all their assets in it, but they can't handle a fifty percent drawdown and they sell at the lows. And it, it yeah, it, you you have to move and maneuver around your portfolios. And and look, I know a lot of perma bears. I know a lot of perma bulls, and I try to be perma profitable and trade both sides and uh, i'm not always right i'm wrong all the time on things and i get over it i move on and i say well that was kind of dumb and i write down in my i have a book here where i write down all my stupid things i do i'm okay i'm okay with it just yeah it's just you know and one other thing if you're if you're diversified and you have your sizing right it's just money you can make it tomorrow if you lose it today you can make it tomorrow if that's the best part, if you have your sizing right, key point what you just said, right? If you bet the farm, maybe that's not the case, right? It's not just money. It's maybe a bit bigger than that. It's your livelihood. It's whatever, whatever. But if you have your rules, in this case, your sizing right, yeah, it's just money and you can make it back tomorrow, right? If you bet what you can afford to lose. Yeah. You know, talking about the ranch, a very smart woman once told me years ago, she said, you always have to keep your seed money. You just, you know, as a farmer, you can't bet your seed money on some speculative venture. You know, I'm going to plant this and hopefully that will grow this year. You got to always have your, your, your amount of money that you trade. The other thing a lot of people do, and it's probably the, the I mean, besides trading on margin and being overly, you know, set up the wrong way, they tend to think that they need to make money really fast yeah and that's the thing and there's a lot of people that in, new people in the market these days they want to make money every single day that's impossible sometimes yeah. you're down sometimes you're up and you you have to again maneuver and that i think is the hardest thing i mean there's there's a lot of people i've seen day traders and i know day traders that are thinking i'm going to quit my job working at wherever and then I'm going to day trade and they're paying their mortgage out of this. They're paying their car payment. They're paying for all their things. And it's even worse when that pressure gets really, really high. I mean, the, the best investor in the world is Warren Buffett. And the reason, I mean, okay, everybody's going to debate me on that, but the reason is he just does his process. He doesn't need to make money. He just wants to make money. He knows when to do it. He knows when not to do something. And he can sit tight waiting for that. Now, that's a nice position to be in, obviously. And there's a lot of us that want to make money every day. But don't try and make money to you know, have a lifestyle or pay your bills. It's very, very difficult. you got to just build and build and build. And that's my biggest worry when I see people that say, oh, I'm retiring and I'm going to trade my own account. <laughs> what's up everybody sorry for the interruption quick note if you enjoy these conversations i publish a weekly newsletter and it's free where i share my top takeaways lessons learned and any action steps i might be taking as a consequence in the market sign up at cambridgehouse.com i publish every week and it's free now back to the conversation One of the first pieces of advice that I that really stuck with me 
was actually from, from Grant Williams, things that make you go, hmm, you know, great. great yeah, I know guy. Grant real well. And you must. Yeah, of course you do. And he's like, the most important thing, day one, is start to understand what kind of investor you are, right? And I took that and it was like, all right, so how do you figure that out, right? And there's a handful of ingredients that need to come into that conversation. Number one, how much time do you have to invest in being an investor? You know, is it an hour a day? When you probably shouldn't be a day trader, right? Is it an hour a week? Is it two hours a day? What is it, right? You know, and that'll determine maybe how you should approach simultaneously your time horizon, right? And oh man, that's that was so helpful for me to sort of weather the storms. Like for example, you know, I I invest in cryptocurrency, right? I'm not super uh, aggressive in in that world. However, I like to dollar cost average in, and I see this as a very long term trade uh, because I'm still not clear that anybody knows what it is yet, right? Whether you're buying a currency, whether you're buying a speculation, whether you're buying some sort of a wealth preservation asset to be determined. It's still 13, 14 years, not enough time to convince me, right? But because I have that decades long perspective, man, it helps when you know, you're down 50% on a position and you could think this has been the game plan the entire time, right? Nothing about this should be surprising. We knew this was going to occur. It's written in the reason we, we, we bought the asset and we knew this was going, you know, so it really, you have your book. I'd love to know what you write in your book when you say, you write down all the all the things you do. Is this to help you understand why you're in a position or, or what's in there, Tommy? I write down a lot of my personal thoughts as well, like how I'm feeling in the day. And, you know, Denise Scholl is a friend and she does like, you know, she wrote a book, Market Mind Games, and she was, I was a client of hers. I also had a guy named Ari Kev, who was a trading psychologist that uh, Steve Cohen hired uh, and then my firm hired when I was running money for my firm, they hired him. He was the sweetest man, but he, he had this whole thought process of, you, know, you got to know yourself. You got to know your, your mindset of how you're, you're feeling. And yes, if you, you know, it's, it doesn't feel good being down 50% of something. I, I, that would you know, certainly not make me feel happy, but if that's your strategy and you're saying, okay, I'm not, you know, this is not my net worth here. Cause if you're down 50%, percent and that's your total net worth you know you're you're seeing a therapist you're taking meds you're yeah. you know you're game over for for a lot of people it's just they can't handle it yeah uh, so it's just really being honest with yourself and having that process and and grant is right know your time frame uh know your limits know your strengths i tend to not focus on my weaknesses i tend to focus on my strengths that's Generally, I try to avoid my weaknesses. I, I've written down, I know my weaknesses. I know when I do something wrong and stupid and it's usually short term, it's usually a bit impulsive, but I stay within my boundaries of how much I put into something and it, it typically works out okay. But yeah, know yourself, know thyself. And it takes time. And I mean, the market is a tough place to learn about yourself. A lot of people learn the hard way, which is really the only way you can learn uh, of, of respecting risk. Yeah. And so back to the gold market for a second, you know, one of my rules there that I find incredibly difficult to stick to, but when I do, I'm rewarded for it. And when I don't, sometimes I'm punished for it. Uh, however, these days I'm able to stick to it more often than not is, is I don't look at a ton of stuff. You know, I've identified about maybe 11, 12 names in the sector. Who, if you look at the long time, well, the, the, essentially the span of their careers have consistently 
over-delivered by a factor of 10, but it just means you have to have patience and you're not going to get in at uh, maybe as cheap of a price as you would on you know the most exciting private placement that hit your desk today. But by consolidating in the precious metal sector anyways, my holdings in a very few number of names, it just gives me the confidence that like I can hold confidence that they're going to ride out the storm, right? I can have confidence in their decision-making in good times and bad. They're going to, you know, whatever obstacles this entrepreneur runs into, I have the confidence they've solved them in the past, blah, blah, blah. Anyways, it's a hard one yeah. to follow because there's always an exciting deal that hits your desktop. Yeah, that, that makes total sense. Again, my view is nothing is permanent in the market. Things go up, things go down, things can be, you know, you go back to Amazon and Amazon went up 6,300%, went down 50%, then went back up the old highs and then dropped 93%. That was like in the first two years or two or three years. And if I had a humongous gain like that, and then all of a sudden it's down 93%, but I'm like, look, I believe in Amazon. It's going to be great. And I didn't sell any, you're going to have a tough time, but you just got to take, you got to take a little off into gains. You got to always keep refreshing and putting money aside into the gain factor. And look, if you have a 5% position in something and it goes up to 7%, or let's say it's even higher than that, you move it back down to 5% or you take it to 4% and you, you, you can then, if it, if it dips, you can buy back to 5%. You just have to always be managing the percentage of, of how much you have in a particular asset. And that to me is really important. And I, I can tell you, I've seen people also, when I started my first hedge fund, the tech manager wanted to, I mean, this was aggressive. We were shorting Yahoo all the way down. And he's like, I want to keep a 5% position short in this thing. Um, but like, like from a dollar weighted basis. And so he just kept shorting more and more and more. I was like, but it worked. And, you know, he kept wanting to buy more long when things would go down because we're two-sided. And I, I just, sometimes you got to be really careful on, on your weightings. And I like to look at it from initial entry and close to it those initial entries on my weightings, but that's, that's just can't be dogmatic and say, I've got a 20 year horizon on something when you just got to keep buy, sell, trim, mm. put, put some in the wind column. That's it. Okay. I, I, wanna, do. I want to talk. Okay. That's, that's a good segue into uh, how you address your wind column. You know, again, some just great counsel that I was fortunate to receive when I started investing in the market was, you know, first of all, ensure you're confident in your cash flow. So whatever, however you generate your income, that's good, takes care of your life, right? In my, mm -hmm. in my case, that's three kids and a, and a mortgage, whatever. Uh, speculate with what you can afford to lose. If you're fortunate to generate profits, peel those out the table, put them in real estate. And that's kind of been my model, you know, at a super high level, that's how, if, you know, how I cycle my profits um, and take things off the table and allocate. How, do you have any, any rules like that or process that you've implemented? Tell me that, that when you take winnings off the table, do you, are you back in the market? Do you take them off the table entirely and hide them in hard assets? How do you address that long-term wealth creation? I've taken money off the table at certain times and just moved cash. I tend to trade around a lot of things. I have a set amount that I call my seed money. And I will if I'm up 20% one year, I'll take some of that off. From my seed money, I I don't, I I know it sounds kind of counterintuitive because everybody likes the the 
you know, if you have more money in the market, you will, will, will grow bigger. And, you know, it's the, I, I tend to have my seed money and I do it every year and I take money out and I, I put it into more stable things. I, you know, there, I invested in with some funds with other people. I have a, I have money in a venture fund that I've had for a while, a couple of hedge funds that are smaller, uh, nothing significant. I've got a PE fund. It's just a, a small position. It's worked great. I will mm. say that. Mm. Um, but when the good times go bad with those type of funds, then it's like, how do I get out? So I've tried to diversify. I tried to move myself away, but I have my business that I do. And, you know, I, I also have you know, my business hedge fund telemetry. So I'm writing research of things and that's sort of a daily record for me as well. That's sort of like my book of how I'm seeing things. I can go back six months and say, what was I thinking here? And I'll pull it up. What was I buying? What was I selling? And, and um, sort of a, a daily diary for me. That's okay. I think very important. Okay. I want to, uh, I want to change directions a little bit and uh, move towards a topic that's been piquing my curiosity and some of the developments in, in China from the regime, specifically from, uh, I don't know if you want to call it like a censorship standpoint or a control standpoint, but some really interesting headlines uh, have occurred in the last couple of months. Number one um, being the restriction on online gaming, right, to three hours a week. It's like a very aggressive control of activity, right? We've seen some really big personalities be sort of scrubbed from existence. Who is it? Zhao Wei, the actress. She's like, you know, the equivalent of Jennifer Aniston in, in China right. overnight disappeared from the internet. And curious as to why you could speculate, right? She was purchasing vineyards in France and building positions in some production companies in China, maybe becoming too powerful, maybe becoming too outspoken. I'm not quite sure. But what do you what do you make of these developments as they start to pile on top of one another, Tommy, right now in China? I think, well, I, I live in the United States. I believe we are, for the most part, a free country to say what we want to say. And that's a great freedom. That's completely different in China. And that's the way they control their population. And they also control their economy in that regard as well. And, you know, not just the uh, actress that was scrubbed from the internet. And it's really like, I, I told my, my wife and my kids, I'm like, look at this, this girl, you know, 25 year career, you know, the Reese Witherspoon, Jennifer Aniston of, of China, mm -hmm. tons of movies. You can't find her name anymore on anything. They've scrubbed it. You can't, you can't get it. And you know, this it's a censored uh, economy. You can't, you don't have Google there, you know, Facebook, the, the social media is non-existent that you can say something and it's not you know knocked out look u.s corporations are scared to death of china they're scared apple is scared of china they will do anything they have to do to appease china and change something in their app that will censor something in china look at the nba remember was it in 2020 all the you know some nba um general manager of houston rockets said something negative like it was, it was sort of innocuous not really like anything that big but he just like stand with the people of hong kong and china went ape shit crazy 
thinking, oh my God, and the NBA basically just, you know, the, the sponsors, you know, Nike and all these others were, were sort of put into the, uh, the doghouse. They had restrictions. Mm-hmm. And then you had, you know, LeBron James, who's the spokesman for the NBA, sort of, oh, we love China. You know, it's all fine. And, you know, they're paying, you know, a lot of money for the NBA's product. And the, you also have Hollywood. I mean, think about the amount of films today that are that have Chinese characters that are, you know, they're financed by Chinese companies. And Hollywood censors movies um, differently than what they put out in the Western world, what goes into China. And it's, it's different. And Jack Ma, the richest man in, in China at one time, was outspoken about a few things and he's, he's disappeared as well. And his company that he built successfully, looking at um, Ant Financial, was going to go public. And China said, no, not happening. And Jack Ma has been, you know, he's sort of an exile. He's, he has tons of assets in the U.S., he owns so much land in New York State. It's just incredible. And he paid whatever he needed to pay because he just wanted money out of China mm. in case there was an escape out of there. So <laughs> China's doing a lot of heavy, strong-handed moves with video games. I mean, look, I, I, I probably think that's a good thing for kids to you know, not, not be on video games 24-7. It's parents' responsibility in my view. But regardless... It's strong-handed, and what they're doing with all the other big tech moguls, I don't think it's going to stop. Now, today, they came out again and said, you know, we are banning crypto uh, transactions, and we're going to go after those mining Bitcoin. And the problem that they're going to have is the bigger people in China use VPNs to get around those restrictions, but they're serious. and. My friend Julian Brigden, has, he was a strong macro guy, knows tons of people all over the world. He told me months ago, he said, China from the top down, and you know who the top down is, is going after these companies. They are going to strong hand these, you know, the free speech um, and these companies. So it's either they're saying you either are with us or you're not. Mm. So let's look at it this way. There's a big car company in the U.S. and in China, Elon Musk's company. He says, says things all the time that are very favorable to China on Twitter. He's, he's bowing to the Chinese. He knows he can say things about Biden, whatever he wants, and get away with it. But he can't in, the, in China. And that, if he ever did, would be end of Tesla in China. And that's the root of the fear, right? When you talk about, you know, some of the U.S.'s most prolific entrepreneurs, CEOs, having a deep-seated fear of offending the Chinese regime, it's a fear of losing that consumer base. Is that correct? Yeah, H&M, Nike, they've had, they've had problems. And, you know, those are, those, Nike's a great example. They, they take these incredibly forward-thinking, controversial type ad campaigns in the US, but God forbid they ever do something like that in China. 
because it would be over, mm -hmm. over. Um, I don't think it's going to stop. I think it's going to continue. They're very serious about this and it's, it's going to sting. And I look, I worry that it's going to hit some larger US companies. What if they came and said, look, Apple, we're going to put some restrictions on you. That's the nuclear bomb in this market. If they did something with Apple. Hmm. I, I don't necessarily anticipate that, but that happened. Look out. What do you think would be the approach there in some kind of a hostile move against one of North America's biggest companies like Apple? Do you think the move would be to like somehow stonewall them uh, within China? Would it be some kind of a, I don't know, backwater hostile takeover? Like what, what would you see occurring there, Tommy? Yeah, it's, it would be more like a campaign. Um, they, they've done it a little bit in the past where it'd be more by Chinese, by China, you know, China first. Right. And they could put some restrictions on some of their, some more of their technology of, on their phones or other products. That could be difficult uh, for, for them. You know, China, they, they could do whatever they want. And when they, they don't talk about it. You know, we talk about it here in the U.S. Oh, we're going to do this. We're going to do that. We're going to put antitrust on Amazon or Microsoft. Or well, they did Microsoft, but no, like Facebook or Apple or Google. They they talk about it, but they don't do anything. In China, they don't talk about it. They just do it. That's the difference. It's scary. I've I've told people, look, I I don't necessarily need to be in these Chinese ADRs right now until the there's more clarity and the government is not you know banging on them i i i don't need another headline or some restriction to beat up my position there's plenty of other things i could be doing mm. now if you were to speculate on the success of an aggressive top-down control measure like we're seeing here and it's everything from restricting online gaming, which I agree. I saw that and I was like, as a father of three kids, I don't hate that so much. It's probably a good idea. And we can talk all day about like, yes, but Liberty, sure. However, you know, I'm just reading this book right now called Nudge by Richard Thaler. They talk a lot about yeah. like, uh, I think it's paternal libertarianism. It's like subtly suggesting better decisions to people, but not restricting the bad ones. Maybe just the way we architect our choices could be done uh, with people's better interests in mind. This is different in China. It's more of like, it's, it's going to be this way, but everything from scrubbing, uh, like a lot of, a lot of male superstars that they deem to be too effeminate are now being scrubbed as well. And they're trying to craft the culture in a certain way, right? Which is interesting to watch. And I, I just, I, I, I there's no way to know, I guess, how this plays out in, in the long run, but do you have any thoughts on that? Like just in the, in the, how sustainable is this a program like this? Well, one of China's biggest fears, the government's biggest fears, is to lose control of certain aspects of society. Ant Financial uh, was a really good example because they were circumventing certain areas of their the Chinese banking system and lending system. And they had they they had a lot of very sensitive data on their customers that the Chinese government, their thought was, 
this has become more of a security risk for the Chinese government. Now, I don't, I don't see this stopping and they're gonna put more restrictions on the Chinese people and make the problem, I mean, I don't, I'm gonna speculate here. The problem I see is that when you put more restrictions on people trying to control them, it will become a more uncontrollable situation when something breaks. Now, it could be this housing situation starting to, you know, seeing these builders and giant corporations blow up or not make payments. Uh, Evergrande is, you know, it's, it's a time bomb. They missed their payment, um, their U.S. denominated uh, payment yesterday. And that's my, my worry is that they, or my concern would be the more power they put on, on top of their people, the more restrictions, there could be an uprising. Just what they're trying to stop could boil up into some larger uprising in the future. Right. Okay, let's let's pull on that thread. Is is Evergrande for context today, September 24th? Uh, is Evergrande uh Lehman Brothers moment? Big question on Twitter right now. You know, every situation is different. Um I, I don't necessarily think it's a Lehman Brothers moment because I think it will be a slower moving event. I mean, I could be wrong, but the Chinese government will, they'll probably not outwardly put money into paying the dollar denominated debt. I doubt that. Okay. It will be managed over months and years to perhaps restructure this. Uh, if I'm wrong, and I could be, I mean, I'm not an expert in this. I've read a lot about it. And it does start to unwind faster and society becomes more upset because their houses or apartments that they have paid for aren't built and they've lost money investing into these. And the, the property bubble in China has been a, a long-standing situation that many, many macro people have speculated that it's going to to a boiling point and blow up. And maybe we're starting to see that right now. I think there's a lot of, you know, when you have, when you have a large asset like a Lehman or Evergrande blow up, it takes down other banks or funds or other places that you didn't know were invested in there. And everything's also levered up in this world that it's like you wake up and you go, how are they getting blown up in this thing? And who knew? It could be, you know, it could be a US bank or you know, BlackRock that could, you know, wake up and say, Yeah, we've got Evergrande exposure and oops. And that cascades. So I I that's the worry. But you know, Lehman Brothers was also an event that happened partly because nobody liked Dick Fold. Nobody liked this guy. And he was really a, a, an arrogant guy, made a lot of mistakes, but other banks did very similar mistakes over leverage. But he also didn't bail out back in 1998. Long-term capital was looking for capital. Long-term capital actually is like a mile away from me, the old building when it blew up. And I, I, I didn't live here. It's right next to my car wash, so I always like to see long-term capital building. I just start to laugh. 
Lehman didn't borrow or lend money to long-term capital. All the other banks did. All the, the Fed and all the other big banks remembered that. And so when Lehman was in trouble, they didn't come to the rescue. And you know, remember also Bear Stearns, Washington Mutual, Merrill Lynch, all these others were in AIG, others were blowing up at the same time. And Lehman was left alone. They let them blow it up. And maybe that was the example. Maybe Evergrande is the example that they're gonna let blow up. And so other you know, similar businesses and corporations, you know, take down some leverage, fix their balance sheets, stop doing the insane, idiotic um, mm. practices and building that's been going on for, for years. So the, the, right. that Lehman Brothers was a moment that people learn from in the banking industry. And I think that there's, there's a lot of reasons why Lehman blew up. Yeah. And it wasn't necessarily just over leverage. It's, Dick Fold was not a pleasant guy. Right. 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 So there may, yeah, no, not a guarantee that there's a Bear Stearns right around the corner that's, that's coming next. Yeah. Bear Stearns, you know, Bear Stearns was the first one to go and it went well before Lehman. That's and JP Morgan came in and said, we'll give you two bucks and the dollar. I don't know, something just ridiculous. And I, this is kind of a funny story. I'm going to deviate a little. One of my friends was the head trader of Bear Stearns, and he went to J.P. Morgan. And after that all blew up, I mean, it was a tragic time for really good people. Bear Stearns was a very good firm. I, I had a lot of very good close friends and business people that I traded with every single day. Hmm. But my friend, who was the head trader, was having lunch months, months after everything blew up with Ace, who, Ace Greenberg, who was the... Uh, head of Bear Stearns and JP Morgan was forced to offer $10 a share. $2 was just too like you're stealing this. They already did steal it, but and Ace said to my friend, he goes, hey, you know, 10 bucks. This is after Lehman blew up. Not so bad after all. You know, so <laughs> it was like, yeah, it's better than uh, what happened to Merrill, Washington Mutual, all the others, you know, countrywide financial, all of them. Yeah. Fascinating. Fascinating. Oh, man. Okay. It's, here we are. It's been an hour. Look, Tommy, thanks for your time. I okay. uh, love having you back on. It's super fun catching up with you. Appreciate your perspective. So thanks for making the time and getting back in front of my audience again. All right, Jay. We'll talk soon. Sounds good. If you enjoy my content, do me a favor. Follow or subscribe to this podcast. Drop me a rating and a review and share this with a friend. All of these things allow me to get bigger and better guests on the show. Now you can catch me all over social media at jmartinbc. Thanks for tuning in.